You got to believe that you can accomplish the difficult tasks before you. We had tragedies in our family. Uh, we lost our youngest child at age 29. Perhaps learning to think outside the box. School isn't rote anymore, is it? Welcome to Elder Wisdom, stories from the Green Bench. This is a place of coming together here through a podcast, but more importantly, on a virtual bench that began at Schlegel Village's retirement and long-term care homes as a place of sharing stories of wisdom and perspectives and memories. I'm one of your hosts for these bi-weekly podcasts. My name is Erin Davis. And my co-host, Lloyd Hetherington, is here with us for episode 25. Now, every one of these episodes you can find at elderwisdom.ca is special, but all with the common thread of connection. And today we bring a father and daughter together to share stories. Joining me on the green bench, as always, I'm so lucky, is my 86-year-old co-host, Lloyd. He's a Schlegel Villages resident, a dad, a grandfather, widower, and retired leader and educator. Most of all, though, Lloyd is a great listener and storyteller. Today, we're going to take you back through the 20th century, thanks to a man who has lived through a great part of it. Ross Morton, who is 96, resides at the village of Arbor Trails in Guelph. And he's accompanied by his daughter, Mavis Morton. Ross is going to share with us stories of a one-room schoolhouse education and the importance of sharing one's history to his family, to his community, and ultimately to us. Well, Lloyd, we have talked here on our green bench with husbands and wives like Dennis and Patricia Bailey, our favorite comedy team and writing team, mm-hmm. and other guests in tandem. But is this our first father-daughter combination? As far as I know, it is. Well, we're both going to have to scooch over on the bench a little bit. So go ahead. You move over, and okay. I'll get over. All right. And there's room for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And Ross and his daughter Mavis are here with us now. Welcome to you both. Ross, thank you for finding time to join us amid your illustrious writing career, having written three books now, sir. Thank you for sharing them with us. And can we talk about your books first, and then we'll talk about the contents of them. Book number one in chronological order from 1997, The Life and Times of a One-Room School. Yes, that came about sort of haphazardly. Um, Dorothy Duncan was uh, head of the Ontario Historical Society, and... um, we had a little committee. We we didn't really know what to do. So somebody wanted to collect things and put it in the shed, and other people said, well, let's write a few articles about uh, some of the farms. And um, she said, do whatever you want to do. There's no rules, and just uh, let it flow, whatever you feel comfortable with, and don't, don't be concerned about it. And... Um, a couple of the lads uh, from the Holly area, they uh, went step by step on the farms and the previous owners and so forth. Uh, 
so they ended up with a book. And from that time on, um, others said, well, I'll write something about something. And I decided I, I got some information on the Conway School. And uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll talk to some of the students and I'll, I'll see whether uh, it'll turn up. I did, with my wife, uh, quite a bit of research on that particular one. And this school, which was open 1875 to 1966, in this life and times of a one-room school, you tell stories of memories of Christmas concerts, schoolyard games, and practical jokes. Is there a practical joke that sort of stands out in your mind from writing that book and hearing people's stories, Ross? Well, there was one that um, I thought was funny. Um with the school, they used big blocks of wood in the basement, and that was uh, the heating system. And Halloween was coming along, and the, some of the girls talked the, the teacher into letting them build a hallway in the basement, and uh, they uh, were going to have ghosts and goblins and things along the way, mm-hmm. and the ritual would be you go in one end and follow this alleyway that you were going uh, and come out the other. And um, a neighbor of ours is several years older than I was, and uh, he motioned to me to follow him. And I didn't have a clue what was going to happen. And uh, But anyway, we he went to the corner of where the the water fountain was and picked up a, a pail of water and went. we went back to the window and um, everything he did I followed him. I didn't know any better. <laughs> and the teacher was standing there with her, with her back to this little window and um, Bill, his name, uh, he threw a pail of water at the teacher soaking her and then <laughs> Uh, he knew what he was doing. He dashed back into the, the school, and I did the same. And we, when the teacher came up from the basement, we were both in the library sitting sitting on the floor reading books. And uh, the teacher was wanted to do some discipline, but she said there's only two in, in the school that I know where they were at the time, and everybody else is guilty until proven otherwise. And uh, we never did tell her this, what had actually happened, and uh, we thought about it, and uh, we thought maybe it would be better to have, for just for go short-term fame for long-term punishment. So did no one get punished for that then, Ross? The teacher never found out who did it. Goodness. And we weren't about to brag about it. So now we know, right, Lloyd? Now we've got something on him all these years later. Oh, yeah. And that's his punishment that he can't brag about it. (laughs) I love the stories about the one-room schoolhouse, too. Uh, You must have taught in one-room schoolhouses as a missionary, uh, Lloyd, surely. Actually, my only career in a one-room school was in 1955 on the shores of Lake Erie in uh, Houghton Township. I was city born and bred. I finished grade 13, thought I'd like teaching, 
but decided to try my wings first. I took a short course of six weeks, and after six weeks, I was a qualified teacher. I signed a contract to go down to SS Number no. 3 Houghton Township, and there it was one a one-room school in a little valley all by itself, a mile or so from the next neighbors, a long distance from the telephone. But man, I loved it. I had 16 permanent students, and the sharecroppers' kids came and went. And we had some marvelous times there. I'm, I'm sure that Ross can relate to them around the old potbelly stove during the winter time, where put on some soup or some hot chocolate, playing out in the field, the fall fair. I could, I could go on forever, but this is Ross's <laughs> opportunity to tell us, so I'm going to have to stop. Well, Ross, maybe you could share a memory or two from the one-room well, school. one thing that I thought was um, we would have maybe 12 people in the school and sometimes up to 30, depending on who happened to be in the community going to school at the time. And um, later years in my life, I was worked in an office in Montreal, and um, some of these uh, Montrealers, they were wanting to know about my school years and so forth. It's just a matter of interest. And I was able to say that all through my school years, I would never lower in the class than second. <laughs> they were quite taken by it. Right. I didn't bother telling them that there was never more than two in my class all the way through school. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh. oh, the fine print, the fine print. Ross, you're in a class by yourself. Yeah, for sure. With your <laughs> sense of humor and all of the research you've done. Uh, uh, almost in the class Just by myself. About. I would uh, like to uh, read to you the uh, my first day at the school my memories of it. We mm -hmm. would love that. Okay, this is it. I remember the walk on my first day of school in September 1931. I was six years old. We lived near the eastern border of the school district with only one farm between our property and the dividing line. As we walked along, we were joined by other children who were either waiting at their laneway or came running to catch us as we passed. Those of us who were about to experience school for the first time were apprehensive. What would the teacher be like? How would we know where to sit? Where would we put their lunch pail? These and other many other questions had been asked and answered many times before, but we all asked them again. I recall being told about the tank for the drinking water. I'd imagined a complicated piece of equipment. I was disappointed to discover, on arriving at the school, that the water tank was simply a barrel-like container on a stand in the corner <laughs> and with lift-off lid. A pail was used to fill the container and the water was obtained from a neighboring farmer's well by means of a hand bomb and transported back to the pool in the pail. This chore was performed daily by the older children. To get a drink of water, it was necessary to turn the handle of the spout located near the bottom of the tank. This action opened a small ball valve 
and allowed the water to run out, everyone used the same chipped agate cup. <laughs> there was no place to wash the cup, or your hands either, for that matter. <laughs> that was great. It gives you a real kind of a taste, so to speak, of the things that we so take for granted now. And just imagine children, Lloyd, going down, and it's part of their job to go get the drinking water for everybody else. Well, I can picture it very, very clearly. We had the bucket in our one-room school, and we had a common dipper that everyone used, and no one thought twice about germs and bacteria and so on. Of course, of course. And, Ross, you'll be able to tell us more about this, was the taste of freedom that you had as a teenager. Because once you moved on to high school, 15 miles away, and the roads never cleared of snow. So you were like, what, 14 when your parents would rent rooms for you and other parents would do this too, and there'd be some kitchen privileges. So you were basically on your own with other kids your age in your mid-teens, that must have been a real taste of freedom. It was very difficult to get a secondary education. And many of the farm kids, if they could finish public school, that, that was it. My parents had rather an, an attractive house, and, and I suppose the taxes were higher on it because it was a good property. But um, all our family... Well, exception of one brother, uh, went to uh, high school much the same as I did. And the, the drill was this. It was about 15 miles from our place to the town, and uh, my parents would rent a, a room with what was called kitchen privileges. So you had the room to yourself, and uh, during the day or, or the mealtime, uh, the owners of the house, uh, they would vacate the kitchen and let you in to get your meals. And uh, it would be maybe from uh, uh, Sunday night till uh, the following Friday night or, or the um, maybe Saturday morning. And um, the roads in the wintertime were seldom cleared until after a snow, so uh, you might have to stay an extra day without seeing your parents. But I learned to flip an egg pretty well, and um, <laughs> I lived on beans and eggs, um, and I still like the beans and eggs if I do them my way. <laughs> when, when homework was uh, assigned, I'd be in my room, and some of the lads I knew from the school would drop by and they'd say, uh, let's go for riding the bike. Now, as a 14 or 15-year-old, and you got guys that want to go for a ride, or you've got some homework to do, sometimes your choice isn't what it should be. And uh, mm -hmm. But we seem to get by. Well, you certainly did, and you not only got through high school, but then, you know, Lloyd talked about finding his wings and moving on to becoming a teacher you literally found your wings in the Royal Canadian Air Force at just 17. Tell us about how you decided to do that and what that time in the Second World War, what it was like for you. I know it's a lot to ask because it's such a huge subject, Ross, but tell us a bit about that in your life, would you please? I uh, assumed that I was going to be a pilot. 
And um, through my lifetime, I had a lot of jobs. At that particular time, I was working at the shipyards in Kingston, building a Corvette. And uh, when I turned 70 and a half, I went to the recruiting area and um, signed up. But uh, on December the 7th, 1941, was when Pearl Harbor was bombed. But I was on a train a year later from Kingston to Ottawa to get assigned to whatever I was going to be placed on, which I assumed was going to be a pilot. And Ottawa at that time, the uh, station was downtown, and uh, uh, where I was being billeted was the Chateau Laurier Hotel. And the Chateau Laurier Hotel was, um, and I guess still is, an outstanding building. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I went in, I was in the foyer and looked around and and the thought came to mind to this little country kid who hadn't been any place. Uh, based on what I was seeing there, uh, the Air Force uh, accommodation would like to be acceptable. <laughs> well, I guess so. I guess so. Wow. But of course, it was just its proximity to the train station right across the street, right? Yes. Yes. So you say you thought you were going to be a pilot. What did you end up being, Ross? Well, I've been told since that it's a poor way of judging. Uh, sitting on the floor with a little railway track uh, extending, must have been 50 feet or so, and there was a little little car on it, and there were cords on both sides, and you had to propel this little car along the track and stop it at a predetermined mark on the track. And this was to, to uh, see how your depth perception was. And mm -hmm. I was not able to hit it. Right then, uh, they said, you, you can be everything else, but you can't be a pilot. Oh. Uh, mm. If I'd have known that, I'd have joined the Navy. Wow. So what did you end up doing? I was a wireless air gunner. And uh, I was trained uh, at the wireless school, which is at Guelph, Ontario. Uh, they had taken over the uh, Ontario Agriculture College. So we were trained, and we were on our way to uh, Southeast Asia when the, uh, the war ended. That's a remarkable experience. I can hardly imagine how you could hear all those dots and dashes and be able to translate that into the alphabet and recognize the words. That is a very special skill indeed. And now, Ross, of course, Lloyd has used his words to write beautiful stories and tell his own autobiography. And I'm sure that his daughter, Mavis, has some things that she would like to share with us here today, because not only the life and times of a one-room school, but we're talking about tales from the townships. And, of course, his latest book, That Reminds Me, an autobiographical reflection. Mavis, what does it mean to you and to your family and your grandchildren the fact that your dad has taken pen to paper, and I'm going to guess it's pen to paper as opposed to a laptop, to tell all these stories. What's that like for you? 
Uh, well, I'm, I'm grateful to have Dad's life and his reflections of his life uh, captured, uh, as you say, for myself and my siblings, our kids and their kids and, and future generations. Um, and I, uh, I'm reminded, um, uh, Lloyd, you so aptly said in a, a previous uh, podcast, uh, 19, with Kathy, you said, uh, precious memories get lost in the dust of time if we're not careful. So uh, that really is really the point, right? I, I, I don't want my family's history to get lost in the dust. And so um, very grateful that dad has taken the time uh, in, in, in these three books um, to really, um, you know, capture those, those experiences, that history, that context. Um, and I, I know I think it's so important to, for him to have captured how different, you know, his life and that context is um, and has changed over the years. And I, I certainly think that uh, in our experience uh, of a pandemic has really highlighted for me how much context matters. So true. And Mavis, speaking of context, one of the things that we learned about your dad and his writing is that that reminds me, the autobiographical reflection, which was sparked by uh, how a friend used to start his stories, was also something that he would write with your mom at his side. And this was a way of helping spark her memory. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so, um, you know, my mom um, had Alzheimer's and uh, she had difficulty uh, with memory. And so it was one way to spend time, uh, one way to engage her. And, uh, you know, she loved to think about and reflect on and listen to uh, the stories. And, uh, and through the years, um, my mom was actually an amazing speller. So I can remember many times where, you know, we would all give my mom things that we were writing for her to read and comment on. And so she was also a great uh, resource for my dad. Um, so it was really, uh, there, was, there was a lot of uh, mutual benefit there and uh, it helped mm -hmm. him maintain an interest and sort of a purpose. And it was a, a, a nice way for her to spend time. That's beautiful to see how the family history is all woven together through the generations. So often... Today, the families are so fragmented, and the nuclear family is just everyone on their own without the communication and the bridge building like that. You've done an excellent job, and I hope your children are picking this tradition up as well. Well, yeah, and I, when, you know, in reflecting in terms of thinking about dad and his writing, I mean, from my perspective, um, you know, dad's always been a writer, and he did start maybe later in life, but from my, you know, child perspective, um, he was always writing. He wrote for local papers, he wrote a piece in the Reader's Digest, uh, he wrote letters to us on sort of a weekly basis once we moved away from home. So writing has always been a, a part of his life, and, uh, you know, we're also very grateful. Uh, his mother, my grandmother, uh, was a poet, and uh, we have the gift of books and books of poems that she wrote or liked and, and wrote in her handwriting. Um, and so the sort of this writing tradition, I, I think, is sort of has been there for a while and, uh, and continues. What a rich heritage. I, I'm sure you treasure it. Absolutely. And, and 
you know, we just don't remember everything. And it's it's really nice uh, for all of us. We uh, we just have had in our family, uh, dad has two great grandchildren that uh, that just came on the scene in this last year. So uh, we, we haven't wow. had a chance to meet them yet, although they are uh, they live in Calgary and their plan is to uh, is to visit us in Guelph. Um, but, you know, I think of those uh, great grandchildren who will also benefit from these stories. So it's, it's an important gift. So as we seek to know where we're going, it's good to look in the rearview mirror and see where we've come from, because that shapes who we are and the reactions that we'll have to life itself. So you have such a great view in the rearview mirror through the writings that will resonate with your family and be a guidance to you for years to come. Absolutely. And, you know, I also think that uh, that what's really cool and, and interesting is, you know, that while my dad has chosen sort of the tradition of writing historically, um, you know, I think it's also pretty amazing to think of him being about 10 years old before his family even had electricity. And today he's participating in capturing some memories via a podcast. So, you know, I, I think that sort of long view is pretty amazing as well. Uh-huh. Mavis, I wonder if we could end on a sort of a sweet and sour note here with your dad. I have a couple of questions for him. One of them, some great, great financial advice that came out of the hard-earned Great Depression. And coincidentally, my dad, who was born in 33, so just about the fourth year of the dirty 30s, of course, but his advice to me about a credit rating was the exact same, Ross, as the advice that you got from your dad way back when then. And I'm sure Lloyd got it too. Could you share it? Well, uh, the thing was that never go in debt. And uh, it played a major part of my life. Uh, I was hesitant to do and buy or do anything on credit, and um, a lot of times it would have been uh, advantageous to to make certain um, purchases or uh, decisions, and I couldn't do it. I all I could remember was that uh, people lost their farms if they couldn't pay back. Yeah. It was the never-never plan, as my parents referred to it. So uh-huh. they steered clear of it as well. I know my parents would say, if you can't afford it today, how can you afford it tomorrow? Don't go into debt. Good point. I have to ask you, Ross, how many siblings did you have? I have three brothers and two sisters. Being the youngest of so many siblings, how did that inject humor into your life? Uh, there's quite a gap between my sister and myself. And uh, mm. I could I could tell you a little story about what can happen when you uh, the youngest is a family and I used to tell them in Montreal that I didn't know my name I thought it was Go Get until I was twelve years old. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Thank you so much for sharing your wit, your wisdom, your memories. And your daughter Mavis with us today, Ross. We are so very grateful to you. And may you continue to keep reminding us of all the great stories that so many people have to tell and have to share. This is so wonderful that you've done this. Thank you. Well, it's quite an honor. When I think I heard, I think it was 1935 in London, that they were thinking about developing something called television. Mm. And... uh, I thought, oh, they'll never do that. But I guess Mm -hmm. they've 
come up with a solution by now. Oh, I think they uh, have. Right. Nothing will ever, ever replace telling stories around a fire. And no. the next best thing is putting it on the printed page so that everybody can share it or on the Internet. And uh, here's to the storytellers, eh, Lloyd? Exactly. And hooray for the podcast to get those stories out as well. <laughs> it's just marvelous when we can just share from the heart the experiences that are so precious to us. Ross, Navis, thank you for sharing with us. It's been a lovely experience. Thank you. Thanks very much. It was our pleasure. If you'd like to read more of Ross Morton's stories, including from 1997, The Life and Times of a One-Room School, from 2014, Tales from the Township, Stories from the Lower Bay of Quinty, and most recently from 2017, That Reminds Me, an autobiographical reflection, please go to rossmorton.ca. Our thanks to Ross and his wonderful daughter, Mavis Morton, for sharing their stories in this vast, wall-free schoolroom called The Internet. Join us next time when we talk with Corleen Schmidt. She, too, was taught in a one-room schoolhouse for part of her education, but went on to get several degrees, and her passion is the weather. Don't miss an episode. Go to elderwisdom.ca and you'll be notified just as soon as there is a new one here on the Green Bench. And we invite you to please share your thoughts and opinions on social media using hashtag elderwisdom. While you're at elderwisdom.ca, be sure and take the Elder Wisdom Pledge. And on behalf of Lloyd Hetherington, I'm Erin Davis. Thanks for your time and we'll talk with you again soon because your seat on the green bench is ready and waiting. Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench, is brought to you by Schlegel Villages, a complete continuum of care, offering independent living to long-term care, celebrating and honoring the wisdom of the elder. To learn more about us, please go to our website, schlegelvillages.com.